Hey there, sports fans, and welcome to episode, is it 38? I think it's 38. <laughs> yep, it is. 38. <laughs> welcome to episode 38 of the DBR podcast. I should really check these things in advance when I'm hosting. Uh, this is Jason Evans. I am your host this week. As always, I am joined by my buddies, my partners in crime, Donald Wine and Sam Klein. Donald, say hello to the masses. Hello to the masses. Sam, you got a really early in there. I should tell folks that um, I had a busy evening last night, uh, and I think maybe we may talk about it a little bit. Uh, I was out very, very, very late, and uh, uh, so we had to record this early in the morning. It is early on Wednesday morning, the 16th of December, and early on the East Coast means poor Sam out in Denver. It's 6 a.m. for you. Yeah, so um, we, had a, uh, we had a little email exchange last night, or yesterday afternoon, about when we were going to be recording, and uh, Jason told us his whole stop, his his sob story about having to see Star Wars twice yesterday, um, which I had no sympathy for, and therefore he couldn't record last night. So I thought, all right, I'll I'll acquiesce. I'll let these guys make me uh, recording at six a.m. Have the first words that I say today be to you guys on the phone, and I was rewarded uh, as I thought. Going to be because when I got up this morning to eat breakfast, I got to read Jason's Star Wars review on the DVR forum over breakfast. So thank you, Jason, for providing the only thing that I needed um, to make this worth it. Well, thank you very much, sir. I I gotta tell you, I mean, it was it was really exciting to watch it, and yeah. I recommend to everyone out there see it without any spoilers. My post contains Sam. You can confirm this. My yeah. post contains zero spoilers. Yeah, really good. People uh, I, I, see. See it without any spoilers. It. It's so great without spoilers. I'm seeing it. Uh, I'm seeing it on Friday afternoon. I actually um, had a. I tried to wedge a funny joke into uh, a comment about your post, and I'll say it here because I couldn't get it into a standard um, one of my one-liner funny posts. So you said something about how um, John Boyega's character had one of the best character arcs in Wars history, and I said, and I was going to say something about how that's incredible. Um, because over the course of the previous six movies, they made an incredible character arc out of a character who had no facial expressions, um, which was Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, yeah and I, I should clarify. I mean, we only... Oh, God. <laughs> I cracked myself up, but you guys didn't get it. Oh, oh, so you're, oh, so you weren't just talking about Anakin as Darth Vader. You're talking about Anakin. <laughs> That's why I said over six movies. I, I, I thought I was setting you up for a C-3PO joke, but see, I turned it on you. I turned it on you. Yeah. Like, yeah. All right. Never yeah. Mind. That fell for anyway. I'm sorry. Let's talk about basketball. Enough Star Wars. Enough Star Wars. <laughs> We could turn this into the Star Wars podcast, and I'd be a very, very happy man, but but we that's not what we're called. We're the DBR podcast. Hey, folks, I want to tease something for you. Um, coming up in just a little bit, we had a conversation just a couple of days ago with Luke Wynn from Sports Illustrated, he, the, the master of analytics for Sports Illustrated's college basketball reporting. Um, we had a great conversation with Luke, uh, at really fascinating. He said a lot of really cool stuff. So if you really don't enjoy the stuff that we're about to do, stick around because the conversation with Luke Wynn is definitely worth it. But the first thing, Sam and Donald, that I want to get to is the most immediate thing for Duke. Last night we played uh, Georgia Southern, um, but uh, part and parcel with the Georgia Southern game is the news that uh, Emil Jefferson is going to be out for at least a little while. It's sort of unclear. Duke hasn't specifically said how long he's expected to be out. We've now heard that it's a uh, it's a fracture, a non-operable fracture, um, and there's lots of speculation about what that means. I've I've heard 
I've heard a lot of like two month kind of talk, which uh, you know is not good. That that would be a a late February return. Um, Donald, let me start with you. Talk either about Georgia Southern or Emil Jefferson or both. So we'll start with Emil Jefferson. That's obviously the the big story over the last couple of days, uh, and it's a it's a it's a big blow because you know we have been talking about how well. Emil has been doing so far this year. So uh, for him to have a setback like that is really uh, 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 very heartbreaking. You know, I, I want him to be in the lineup, and, and I think he, we've been doing well with him in the lineup, and he's been performing well so far this season. So uh, to see him suffer an injury like that is just devastating, and hopefully it's not too much. You know, I when I heard fracture, um, I didn't think uh, a long-term, com- uh, you know, sit sideline on the bench. Uh, but he does have, like, you know, look, Last night during the game, um, he was on the bench. He had a hard cast on. He didn't have one of those walking boots um, that you'd normally see for an injury. That would be in the two, three-week nature. So uh, maybe it's precaution. Uh, hopefully it is. Um, but it seems like it's going to be uh, a, a nice period of time um, before we see him back on the court. The lucky thing is that we're in the holiday season. We don't have many games. Um, well, you know, we do Utah on Saturday. We've just been off for 10 days, and I think – Utah were off for another nine days. So, uh, and, and ACC season still a couple of weeks away. So maybe it's one of those things where they're taking precautions and um, over the holidays they'll let him rest and see where we are in January. Um, or, or, you're right. It could be one of those things where um, the first thing I heard when uh, he said right injury out indefinitely was, you know, Ryan Kelly, um, who did sit out for a couple months uh, in, in the end. So, uh, hopefully it's not that long. Hopefully he's back, and hopefully it's just more of a precaution than anything. Um, but uh, I'd like to see him back on the court. Yeah, I. Uh, this is just another opportunity for Duke fans to worry about a foot injury, uh, which is a thing that we are immensely familiar with. And, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a bummer, as Donald mentioned about Emil Jefferson. I did want to point out that um, the DBR forum went crazy last night. Um, taking the speculation of a person who had just joined the forum to tell us that Emil was definitely going to be out for eight weeks and for everybody to just relax and wait. Um, Coach K had a lot of comments last night uh, that um, were revealing about the injury, about, you know, what, what was wrong with him and, and, and what they were, what their process was going to be. And he didn't mention anything about a timeline. So um, the best we can do at this point is just wait and see and um, trust that the Duke medical people are taking care of Emil Jefferson as best they can. Well, and uh, the only definitive timeline thing we did hear is that he's going to be reevaluated on December 26th, which is, you know, about 10 days from now. Um, Obviously, you know, losing a meal would be a huge loss for Duke. And it's not just that he was averaging a double-double. I think people don't understand how much a guy like that who is a great defender and and who's been in the program for a long time, how much he contributes as a communicator, as a backup, so to speak – to a lot of the other guys on the team um, while they're on the floor. And by backup, I mean he's the guy sort of telling them where they need to go. If they mess up a little bit, he he picks up the slack and he's able to, to adjust things. Um, he makes everybody better in half the game, the de- defensive half of the game. I'm not taking anything away from his offense, which has been much better this year than it has in the past, nor am I taking anything away from his rebounding. But I think the place you're really, really going to see Duke miss him is on the defensive end of the floor, um, and it's defensive communication. It's it's you know knowing how to help and when to help and, and all that other kind of stuff. And I also think 
and, and by the way, this is a little bit of a, a tease, so to speak. When uh, when we spoke to Luke Wynn, one of the things we talked a little bit about was small ball and the Golden State Warriors and this fascination with um, the notion of maybe a team where you could get a, a bunch of similar sized guys that can play almost every position. And there's a piece of me that felt like Duke was getting kind of close to that this year um, when they had Emil Jefferson on the floor with Brandon Ingram as our two big men, two guys who are big enough to guard just about any other big man around um, and can certainly rebound. Uh, but also, if they suddenly find themselves switched onto a guard, no big deal. They can still handle the defensive assignment. Um, and I was like, oh, you know what? Duke could really toy with this. I mean, with Matt Jones and Grayson Allen and and perhaps Luke Kennard, uh, you know, we've got guys where we could really do, a, a, you know, kind of a Golden State Warriors kind of thing. Um, without Emil Jefferson, I think that's going to be next to impossible. We, I, you know, I just don't think that we have um, the defensive presence inside to be able to accomplish that. Uh, so it's it's kind of a bummer. Um, but we, we don't know how long he'll be out. And and again, these are opportunities. I mean, this is a big opportunity for Chase Jeter. What did, let, let's go to the, the Georgia Southern game. Um, what, what did you guys, Sam, what did you see from Chase Jeter? What did you see from the Duke team in general um, as we played our first game without Emil Jefferson? Well, the, uh, as you mentioned, the, the place where Jefferson helps the most is on defense, and it was evident in the first half that, that they really missed him. Um, the uh, Georgia Southern guys were getting to the lane, into the lane a lot and, and getting baskets that I don't think they're getting if, if Emil Jefferson is playing defense in the paint. Um, so it took, it took Duke about a half to adjust to that. They, they ended up pulling away and winning by like 30 points anyway. Um, but the first half was kind of a struggle for Blue Devils on defense, especially the offense was fine. I mean, uh, as you point out, it's not, you know, Emil Jefferson's def- offense has been fast improved this year, but he's kind of doing his own thing. It's like he gets, he gets the ball and then, and there isn't necessarily a lot of passing after that. Cause he's usually getting like an entry pass into the post and he can make post moves and do stuff with it. And he can put offensive rebounds back. Um, but he's not, he's not moving the ball around on the perimeter the way that the way that guys like Brandon and Grimm and Grayson Allen and Matt Jones are. So um, the offense didn't really struggle. It adjusted a little bit. Brandon Ingram had to score a lot more, and he did. Um, I wasn't super impressed with Chase Jeter's performance. He, uh, he looked a little bit lost, I think, out there. Uh, but so it'll take time. Coach K did have an interesting comment after the game about how uh, the rotation's going to get smaller now. It's not that they're going to try to integrate OB or rank of it um, now at this point. They, you know, it, it's it's guys who have been playing there, the guys who are going to continue playing. So we're going to see more Jeter. We're going to see, um, we're going to see more Kennard. And, and you could see last night, I think, a little bit. The one part of the offense that, that could have been better last night was Kennard shooting. Uh, he had a, a few shots that went in and out. And I think that that was just a luck of last night. I think that uh, he's going to get a lot more touches now and a lot more opportunities to score. And the team is going to, in general, be scoring more from outside because they don't have Jefferson. So uh, it, it's a work in progress. You could see you could see some of it last night, but but I think it's going to continue. And and Utah is a is a talented team. It's going to be a, a little bit of a struggle for Duke to keep up. Uh, I I agree with what you said, Sam, um, regarding us on the offensive end. I, you know, I thought there was some rust um, uh, for us. You know, with the long layoff, we we've been off I think for ten days um, in the first half, and and clearly we were much better in the second half. Um, late in the I should say late in the first half in the second. Half because we kind of turned it on final five minutes or so of the, of the first half. I'm not bothered at all by Luke Kennard missing those open threes. He was, he was O of six on, they were pretty, they were pretty open shots. I, I thought 
pretty much every one of them was going to go down. <laughs> um, and he only made his last one. The announcers uh, commented on that and, and said that he's probably going to get ribbed by the bench for, you know, draining a three when, when there was like a minute left and, and we were already up by 30 points when he hadn't hit any of them earlier in the game. I think that's going to come around. You could see yeah. you could see him smile after he hit that one where he was like, all right, all right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the other two comments I have um, relate to Brandon Ingram and Marshall Plumley. And first, Brandon Ingram, uh, we are uh, we, we have seen in the past few games this renaissance in Brandon Ingram's game. Uh, he has clearly begun to figure out the, the college game, the speed at which it goes and how he can impact it. Um, I, I thought he was absolutely devastating last night. Um, uh, they couldn't handle his length. We've been saying this all year long, but they really couldn't handle his length. And he had a couple plays. I mean, you know, the the, the three point play dunk, and there were there were a couple others where, you know, again the plastic man kind of comparison comes up because his arms seem to keep on going beyond the the stretch of normal <laughs> normal human bounds. Um, he was he was fabulous, and um, you know, obviously we're gonna miss a meal, but uh, there's some things that I think Brenton Ingram can do that will make up for uh, even on the defensive end of the floor uh, make up for Emil Jefferson um, in, in some big ways because his length, his instincts, his speed and quickness. Brandon Ingram is a very, very unique ball player. Um, uh, I, I laughed at one point. The announcers in the game said, so do you, do you think he's one and done? And the guy goes, yeah, I think probably so. I think he's a lottery pick. And I want to be like, guys, where have you been? This guy's going top three. Um, and they're, you know, Ben Simmons, I think is almost certainly the number one, but Brandon Ingram could be easily number two because if I'm an NBA team i'm going to look at his ability to stroke the ball from deep um his ball handling and then look at those arms look at that length and just uh, there's a huge correlation between length and success in the nba and brandon ingram is long so the other guy i want to talk about is marshall plumley um uh and by the way you know grace Allen, matt jones had a really nice game matt jones matt jones was as good hitting his little running you know bank shot jumper kind of stuff as he's been all season which is great to see uh, Marshall Plumley, um, I thought was more aggressive on offense than, than just about any game we've seen him in and Duke looks for him more than they have, which, which is nice and something they may have to do with, with Emil out of the game. Um, a friend of mine sent me a note though, and I thought this was so funny. I just had to repeat it. He said, he's never seen anyone before Marshall Plumley who could take a shot from one foot, miss it by 18 inches, a foot and a half. Uh, Marshall Plumley, for some reason, Every time he puts the ball off the backboard, he puts a tremendous amount of spin on it or something like that, and it hits the backboard and it flies. He had at least two or three shots where he put it up on one side of the backboard and it missed on the whole other side of the backboard, which if you think about it, is not easy to do. Um, the guy needs to develop a little more touch. I actually think he's been watching a little bit too much of Emil Jefferson, who is a master at using the backboard, but he uses it in a soft kind of way, Marshall Plumley is trying to break the backboard with his shots at times. Marshall, we love you. I thought you had a, a very nice game, and we're going to need you to play well going forward. And, and and you did really nicely against Georgia Southern. But, dude, just try a little bit softer on those shots, just a little bit softer. Hey, Donald, your turn. He, I was going to say that Marshall Plumley can't. He's Army strong. Uh, he is Army strong. And he is armying that ball off the backboard. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, like, I swear, he had one where he was right underneath the basket on, like, the right side, and it missed on the left side by a good two feet. It was incredible. I don't know how you could even do that if you tried. He's just trying to pad his uh, rebound stats. I mean, he had 11 last night, so he's just trying to more on the offensive side. There you go. There you go. What, what else did you have from the game? So, uh, you, you – 
talked about Brandon Ingram and forgot to talk about the fact that um, some Georgia Southern kid who had a family and his whole life ahead of him was murdered by Brandon Ingram last night on that absolutely vicious dunk uh, towards the end of the game <laughs> that they called a, a charge at first and then realized that the kid was uh, unfortunately standing in the circle uh, for him. Um, so it was one of the great dunks um, of the of the year so far. Um, that was uh, – I've never seen that. That's, that's the link that we're talking about because what he did on that play, he took one step and dribbled one time and then jumped from about 15 feet, and his length carried him over a kid that was 6'10 and just destroyed him. So that is the link that we're talking about here, and that's why he's probably, like you said, a top three pick uh, next year if he decides to go. But uh, I thought he had a great game. Like you said, I think the game is slowing down for him. Uh, he was 9-13 shooting, which – you always worry about uh, the team shooting after this little extended break for finals. Uh, we shot 53% as a team from the floor. So I think that's pretty good for uh, a 10-day layoff. Um, we talked about Plumlee earlier. And one thing that I had read before, uh, right before the game started, and I was talking with a friend about it, is that uh, Plumlee uh, said that he had been working on his conditioning over the finals break. And he said he wanted to get to a point where if the team needed him to go 30 to 35 minutes uh, a game, that he'd be able to do that. Um, this was before we found out about Emil's injury. So I thought it was kind of um, ironic that we heard about that because that meant that with Emil being out, Plumlee had to step up. He had 22 he, for 22 minutes. I think we saw a lot more of Chase Jeter, and I agree with Sam in that uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, impress um that, that to be impressed about from chase performance but i thought marshall played really well uh, especially underneath grabbing 11 boards um he was very impactful on defense um altering shots he had a couple where uh you know there was there's a couple times where you know emil jefferson would be in the lane and we didn't have him there so there was nobody there to protect against uh a cutter going down the middle um, and that's usually where Emil is there to stop or alter the shot. But there's a couple times where Plumlee recognized that and was able to get over and at least alter the shot. I think he only had, I think he had two blocks. Um, but I think there was maybe four or five other shots where he was able to get enough uh, of a hand in the face to alter a, what would have been an easy uh, cutter for uh, two points. So um, I think he did well in that area. Um, Matt Jones, um, I, I watched the game with a couple friends. Um, last night and there's there was a time where he literally got shook out of his shoe almost but still the the uh the did not advance the ball a foot and we were like matt jones is the only person who could literally get his ankles broken and still cover in time for nothing to happen so i think his defensive footwork has been great and i think he is probably our best defender in that i'm not really worried when he when he loses a man because he's able to recover so, so well on defense. And I think that was the key to stopping a lot of their uh, momentum when Georgia Southern was starting to uh, hit a couple three pointers. And then finally, I like to see, um, I like Luke Kennard and Derek Thornton was at least able to get some confidence. I mean, Derek Thornton, I thought had a great game. Uh, he, he did. I, I feel terrible that we yeah. haven't mentioned him yet. He had a really nice game and his ability to get into the lane and finish is, is really pretty unique. He, yeah. he is, Special in that regard. And he was able, I mean, he was three for three from three point land. So he was, you know, hitting open shots and he was very smart about the ball. I think he only had two turnovers. He had four assists. He had four rebounds. He really spilled up the stat sheet. But what I like to see from Thornton and Kennard is the fact that I want to see them 
watch the ball go into the net. So, you know, Luke had a tough game, but he still ended up with 11 points. But I think that is what is going to help him going forward. That the last, you know, few minutes, he kind of went on a little tear, um, hitting a couple shots, like you said, hit the three at the end and kind of smiled. Because he knows those shots are going to come in. And Coach K, after the game, said that, you know, Luke Kennard is playing really, really sharp at practice and somehow hasn't translated that over to games yet. So when that happens, we're going to see a, a, a much better Luke Kennard. And I think that last night is good to help confidence because we're going to need points from him. We're going to need points from Thornton as we move forward without Emil Jefferson. Yeah, one thing we haven't mentioned, guys, um, uh, the starting lineup. Uh, so I, I think everyone probably would have thought that Derek Thornton would have gone back into the starting lineup and said it was Luke Kennard. Um, surprise you guys at all? Uh, it didn't surprise me. Um, I, I think I, I feel like when I was looking at this season, we've been talking about it for, for months now, um, that Thornton and Kennard may go back and forth as far as who was in the starting lineup in that point guard position. Um, I mean, the, the one spot we really don't have positions, but, you know, that one spot. Uh, and, you know, there's been times where we've seen Matt Jones in that position uh, so far this season. So uh, I think this was a chance for for Coach to give Luke Kennard some confidence because we're going to need that on all in, in all areas of the game going forward. And, and it's also worth pointing out that this game was against the Georgia Southern team that's ranked really, really, really low in Ken Palm. I think they're in the 300s. Mm-hmm. Um, so the expectation from last night is probably that Duke is going to win anyway. Let's see what let's see what we can do to you know mix things up now that we have Jefferson out. I think it's going to be a lot more telling to see how the minutes break out against a uh, against a Utah team that, that's that's not quite as good as I think they were supposed to be, but is still a pretty strong team. So that sounds like a perfect place to uh, segue over to the the Utah Utes, um, who is our next opponent coming up just this weekend. Play them in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Utah, um, pretty highly regarded team on the on the national scene. Uh, they uh, they they were in the NCAA tournament last year. Uh, we played them in a, a pretty good game, um, a game that Duke could have lost, but we we ended up pulling out pretty nicely toward the end. Um, uh, in fact, last year Utah was a pretty fashionable pick. For the final four a lot of people thought that they would upset duke and then go on to make the final four didn't work out that way for them but um utah's a, a a fine high quality club a program on the rise and a program that seems like it's going to be sort of a perennial top 20 at least kind of uh t- type of team um sam i think you had a look at them a little bit tell us what we should uh look out for against utah i think it starts with a big man in the middle yes uh so i, I did want to recap very quickly the game from last year only to remember that we recorded the podcast a few minutes after our Sweet 16 victory over Utah. And I recorded the podcast from the parking lot at the Hooters in Arizona. So that was in the middle of my uh, of my every weekend travel uh, excursion. And uh, it was a fun episode to do, I, as I recall. Um, oh, so, so wait, so, so are you going to be going to a Hooters to watch this game? Because I think from a karma standpoint, you kind of need to, don't you? Well, unfortunately, I have tickets to the game. So I'm going to be in Madison Square Garden uh, at the Utah game. Oh, poor baby. I hope it doesn't change anything. I know uh, my only my only concern is the last time I saw a game in New York that Duke was playing and they were playing Butler and that's the one where Kyrie hurt his toe. Um, but we've already suffered the foot injury this year, so I, I don't know how that I don't know how the sports all works for that. Uh, I'll have you guys recall that this is the game last year. Um, uh, the story that I talked about uh, turning the game off uh, from Maryland fans and uh, la- last uh, the last podcast. So this is this is we're now. Coming- full circle we get to play utah again i really hope that maryland's playing on saturday so i can go to a bar and change the channel again Ooh, good. oh you are epic <laughs> all right so let's, let's 
let's talk about Utah a little bit because they are an interesting team. They've, they've underperformed a little bit this year, as I mentioned. Um, they've, they've lost to the two best opponents they played so far in Wichita State recently and then Miami a few weeks ago. They are led, of course, by their uh, sophomore center, Jakob Pertl, who we played against last year and who is a phenomenal player. He was expected to be a lottery pick last year, and he came back to school for his sophomore season. Um, so I would assume that he is still projected to be a lottery pick this year in a, in a weaker draft where he's a year older. He's averaging 20 points a game and, and close to 10 rebounds and two blocks. He only, uh, he only commits two fouls per game, which is pretty impressive given that he's playing 30 minutes and he's going to be matched up on Marshall Plumley, who I don't think he's going to draw a lot of fouls on, but who he probably will um, be drawing a lot of fouls from. So the key in this game is going to be how Duke plans to contain Jakob Pertl. It's going to be to deny the ball into the into the post, which is probably going to be more effective because Duke doesn't have that inside defender, I think, to hang with him. You know, Plumley Plumley can probably handle him for a few minutes, but not for the 30 that Pertl is going to play uh, in the game that loss recently to Wichita. They managed to throw a number of different big men at Pirtle throughout the game, uh, which I think frustrated him. And and the Utes committed 19 turnovers in the game. So uh, that's going to be the that's going to be the key for Duke is is getting those turnovers uh, and and not letting Pirtle get his, if you will. Uh, they've got a couple other interesting players. We we saw um, both of them last year. This is a this is an experienced team. They're two other best players are uh, their point guard, Brandon Taylor, who's a senior. He's only five foot ten, and he's only, only averaging three, uh, close to four assists a game. So um, the Utes don't move the ball around quite as well as maybe they like to. Uh, it's probably pretty similar to this Duke team. And in again, in the last game, um, they they contained Taylor pretty well, which Tusk State did at the, the Fred Van Bleet's club. So, um, you know, frustrating, frustrating him on the perimeter is going to be key. And then they also have uh, another big scorer in um, their swingman, Jordan Bridge, who's also a senior, uh, scores 15 points a game, kind of does everything for them. So they, there are three main guys for, for Utah that need to be contained in the, uh, in the two games that uh, Utah has lost. You know, you say that they've lost to good teams, but they lost to good teams, Wichita and Miami, who were um, – who both shot really, really well during the game. Uh, Wichita made like seven threes in the first half against them. Miami scored 90 points against them, led by Sheldon McClellan with 27. And that was a few weeks ago in Puerto Rico uh, when, when Miami looked like, you know, one of the best teams in the country. So Utah is very beatable, um, but they're still very talented. Pirtle is, is maybe the best player on the floor in this game other than Ingram. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how Duke defends him. And I, I think that that's going to be the key is, is – is having a strategy for containing Pirtle that, according to Coach, is not going to include very much of Obi or Rankovic. Well, yeah, I, I mean, really quickly, Sean Obi, um, you know, got into the game last night against Georgia Southern late, and I think it sort of told. I know there'd been some Duke fans out there who sort of thought he might get more time in the wake of I mean, Jefferson's injury. Um, uh, he got fed in the post. He was pretty much wide open, and it it, it sort of took a lot of effort for him to even score a wide open slam dunk. It just didn't look very graceful or athletic. Um, yeah. Obi's not gonna be playing very much, but, but back, back to Utah. Um, uh, Jordan Loveridge uh, scared me a little bit because he's a really, really good outside shooter. And I would imagine that what happens a lot is that teams collapse around Pirtle and Loveridge finds room on the perimeter to, to bomb away. Um, 
and uh, you know, I don't know that you'll see that from Duke, but but uh, yeah, that's probably you know Utah's main plan to succeed is you know that one-two punch between the two of them. Um, uh, Donald, did you have anything about Utah to add? Yeah, so I think the one thing that I'm worried about is uh, this is the first game where foul trouble in the in the post inside is could be an issue um, because of our you know limited uh, resources now that Emil is on the bench. Um, we gonna, we're going to need you know Marshall to go at least 25 30 minutes, um, and with their big man being so good and so smart, and he I mean he was you know, excellent last year uh, against us. Um, I, I think that is going to be the worry is they're going to try and get Marshall out of the game and get us down to where we have a rotation of Chase Jeter and Sean Obi uh, because, or Vankovic, because there's, there's no other guys left. So uh, that's going to be the worry for me. I think every, everything else that uh, you both have said is spot on, but that's my uh, big takeaway. You know, by the way, it's worth noting that when we played Utah last year in the NCAA tournament, I mean, granted, everyone's a year older and all this other kind of stuff. Pirtle, uh, you know, we were concerned about him coming into the game. We had a conversation with a Utah blogger who, you know, previewed the game for us and really talked about how um, Pirtle could be a, a, a major obstacle for us. He, he, he ended up not just not doing all that much. He had 10 points and eight rebounds. Um, he did have three block shots. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, he, he, he was not tremendously uh, uh, game-changing in terms of his effect. Um, as folks may recall, that was like the Justice Winslow game. It was a game where um, no one really was playing all that great other than Justice Winslow, who took over the game a few different times and, and carried us to victory. Um, Marshall Plumley, by the way, played five minutes in that game and, and, again, didn't do very much. He did pick up a couple fouls, which doesn't necessarily bode well for maybe how he uh, how he will match up with Pirtle this year. But um, the MP3 of 2014-15 uh, isn't nearly the player, I think, that we've seen from MP3 just thus far um, uh, this this season. Um, and, and we really hope going forward that he'll continue to do it. Donald, I, I want to echo, I think your comment is a very, very wise one, that foul trouble could be really, really significant um, uh, because, you know, I don't know if Kay's, do you, hey, let me put this out there. Do either you guys think that there's a chance um, against Utah or anyone else that Kay might say, okay, I'm going to go with Brandon Ingram as the only big man on the floor? They might have to. It's probably a bad idea in this game with, with Pirtle as, as talented as he is. Um, so if you can. Especially because Ingram isn't very strong. Ingram, Ingram isn't, he, he's got the length, but he does not have. Um, the strength to handle big men, I don't think. If they do that, they're going to have to go with the aggressive, you know, cutting off the passing lane defense that Duke used to be so good at and has kind of gone away from the last few years. That's the only way that you can stop them if you're playing small like that. Yeah, I, I actually envision a, a, a chance this game that we do see that because, I mean, like you said, the, the personnel will provide for that. Like, we're, we're going to have a point where if, if Marshall Plumlee gets in the foul trouble, then you either go with, Chase Jeter full time. You go with Sean Obi, or you put Ingram at the five, and and you kind of slide everybody over, and maybe put Thornton in and Kennard up top with Allen at the three, or or, or in, in Matt Jones at the four. Like I, I I I'm sure they've come up with that scenario and who that small lineup, uh, the preferred small lineup is going to be. And I I envision there's going to be a chance that we see that just to see what kind of length, uh, how how the length will affect uh, the uh, Utah's inside game. 
Yeah, it could be interesting to see someone like Ingram if he tried to maybe front big men with his length and force teams to lob over him, which <laughs> I I don't know how you lob over Brandon Ingram and get the ball to the guy that he's fronting. I think that could be really difficult. There was one play, I don't think you guys mentioned it when we were talking about Georgia Southern. I think it was in the first half where Ingram uh, took a shot from inside and then reached up to get his own rebound for the putback, but it was from like maybe six or seven feet away from the basket and he didn't jump for the rebound. He just kind of reached his hands up and and there were three or four players who were standing around him who all jumped and couldn't get to the ball. Um, and it was like, what? where did he come from? <laughs> He's so enormous. <laughs> It's like he's from another planet. His length, I've never seen anything like it. This is also going to be one of those games where I, I, I'm i looking in my mind, and I think a 1-3-1 uh, can be employed at times, especially with that small lineup, because you know how we you were just talking about whether Ingram would front uh, the big men in the post. And if you do that, then you have that one in the back, which has usually been Matt Jones, who can fly from side to side and be that help uh, from behind. And Matt Jones been really good about being in the right position at the right time so uh look for that too i, I think that might be a good uh thing that coach k throws at him from time to time yeah and i'll, I'll tell you this i think that if we go to the one three one it's still brandon ingram at the top of the one three one and the and the mm-hmm. purpose behind it the goal of it will be to keep them from even getting the ball into the post using right. our length and using our perimeter quickness to keep the ball from even getting down in there um uh, and I, I agree with you. I think we could see it um, a good bit in this Utah game. It'll be look. It'll be a fun chess match to watch between the two Coach K's. You know, folks out there on the West Coast, folks in Utah, think that Larry Kristowiak, their coach, is uh, is the other Coach K. Um, so uh, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting and 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 fun to watch. Um, Jason, guys, we're Jason. I, I need to correct your use of the of the term West Coast. Uh, those of us who live in the Rocky Mountains or near the Rocky Mountains do not consider ourselves West Coasters. But it's fine. Uh, you have East Coast bias. I, I understand. <laughs> Look, basically, once you pass Chicago or Dallas, you're all the same to me. Oh, no. <laughs> no don't, don't do that to us. We have our own identity that, that the West Coasters are trying to steal from us. My, my brother and his family live out in L.A., and, and so I, I've been out there. I, I've, I've flown over your states. No, I, I've also skied in your states. But uh, – <laughs> <laughs> They're in Colorado than it is in Utah, but that's a personal preference. Uh, hey, they're both great skiing. They're both great skiing. Um, okay, so uh, so we're going to wrap up our basketball conversation now by uh, turning things over to an interview that um, Donald and I were lucky enough to do just a couple days ago with Luke Wynn. Luke is the senior writer for Sports Illustrated and an incredibly talented writer. He's won um, eight Best Writing Awards from the U.S. Basketball Writers Association, which is pretty darn impressive. Um, uh, and he's a great guy. He was very nice to agree to come on uh, uh, the, the podcast and chat with us a little bit, a little bit about Duke, but mostly about the national college basketball scene um, and things he's observed and things he's seen. So here's our interview from just a couple days ago with Luke Wynn, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. So we're joined now by Luke Wynn, who's the senior writer for Sports Illustrated and spends almost all his time paying attention to college basketball. Luke, thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you're a Northwestern grad, and you know we Duke fans have a great affinity for the Wildcats because of Coach Chris Collins, um, who's a friend of the podcast. He was on our podcast just a couple months ago. 
What is it like rooting for, and I say this with love, the worst team in major conference history? <laughs> and do you think, could this finally be the year that you guys make the NCAA tourney? First time in history. You know, I wouldn't even say, and I hope this isn't too mean, but I wouldn't, I don't even root, and I know people don't believe that writers don't root for their alma mater, but I guess, I think when you go to a school like Northwestern where, you know, you spent four years there, and you never had an NCAA tournament team to even, you know, get attached to. It's just that, like, I never really even, I was there, and I don't think I even really developed, like, that much of an affinity for Northwestern basketball. You know, I, I imagine if you, you, know, you guys, as Duke fans, like, if you, if you, you know, the people who go to Duke develop this, like, incredible attachment to the team, and I see it, you know, when you go there. But that's not really the case at Northwestern, so it's not like I, uh, I feel like a yearly sorrow or tied to their, uh, you know, missing the tournament. Um, this year, I think they're, you know, I think they're going to fall like right on the edge this year. I mean, they've been, um, I, I think they're, they're about a 500 team in the big 10. I think the fact that like a few of the big 10 teams like Wisconsin or Ohio state that maybe we thought in the preseason were going to be tournament teams that are looking maybe like they're not, uh, could Northwestern could jump ahead of them. So I think it's been really close. Like there could be like a nine and nine or 10 and 18 in the big 10. Um, I worry that they didn't help themselves with their non-conference schedule. They just gave them, they gave themselves one shot at, an, at a tournament team in the non-conference and it was North Carolina, who you're probably not going to beat and they didn't beat. So now they're going to have this resume where it's like, it's all going to have to be on their big 10 wins, which scares me a little bit. So they're going to be, I, I think they're going to be like on that line of last team in, you know, first last team in, first team out kind of thing. Yeah, it's better than it's been in the past, though. Oh yeah, no, that's like this is that, that's like an incredible year. That's that's like the Duke equivalent of winning, you know, being in the Final Four or winning the national title, right? Is Northwestern <laughs> being first team in, right? Right. For for us being on the bubble of the Final Four is a big deal. For you guys being on the bubble is a really big deal. Oh yeah, bigger, yeah. You guys, Final Four, you're like, yeah, you're spoiled at this point. You guys don't even get that excited about We still get excited for Final Fours. But, uh, hey, okay. I, I want to turn this conversation just really quick. So I know you're a huge analytics guy. I love reading your power your power ranking column, and there's tons of analytics in there. Um, I'm going to ask you a crazy analytics question. What do you think is sort of the most revealing stat? And what is, like, the most deceptive one, the one that you look at and you go, that just doesn't matter at all? Wow. Um, most revealing stat. I mean, I think that, you know, I guess I, I'm i obviously just like a foundational stat for any person who's into college basketball analytics is efficiency, which is becoming very mainstream. And I feel like that's the, you know, I mean, that's become, it's become mainstream almost at this point, but I, I don't like cringe still when we see, you know, you see telecasts where, you know, someone's using points allowed as a measure of defense or, you know, something like that. Like, just right. removing – putting all the teams – I guess the the best thing that efficiency has done is make people acknowledge that, you know, you're you're in a, a Division One with 351 different teams playing at hugely different speeds, um, and it's kind of putting everyone on that same level, which I helped, really helped me, like, when I started getting into analytics, just understand how to evaluate teams better. I feel like I – Maybe for a little bit watching college basketball when I was starting this job, I didn't feel you know comfortable. How do you how do you you know compare Carolina to you know a team in the Pac-12 or something like that? It's a way to put everyone on the same plane. I feel like and really understand you know, understand and how to evaluate people. And then for misleading stuff, um, you know, I mean, there have been studies done to look at like 
how three-point shooting uh, isn't is, is a little bit more of a – I guess the term Tim Tomra uses at one point was that it's almost a lottery. Like, you have, to, you have good shooters and, you know, maybe over tons of shots it shows things, but, you know, to evaluate, like, a defense on what three-point percentage it gives up, things like that, like, it's just not – it's not that telling of a team in the long run. Like there, there are little factors of defense that are just more telling. Like how we you know how they protect the rim, um, you know what kinds of shots they give up, things like that. Versus just, um, you know, like I, I thought that like going to Oklahoma beat Villanova recently, and Villanova like couldn't hit a three anywhere. And people use that as a sign that Oklahoma's defense is incredible. This was last week, and it was kind of a luck. There's a big amount of luck built into certain things, but you need to kind of acknowledge that too. Yeah, well, and, and as Duke fans, we're keenly aware of that. We've had teams that were great three-point shooting teams that got unlucky in the tournament, and we've had teams that, you know, seemed to be really good and then ran into someone who had a great lucky night, and as a result, we were done. I mean, I, I, I think back on, you know, the end of Kyrie Irving's career at Duke. Um, that was in 2011. It was a, a great team that everyone thought was going to, you know, potentially win win it all, and then we ran into an Arizona team that, like, shot lights out, and nothing you can do about it just happens. Yeah, these three, you know, the three-point teams are kind of, you know, the, the term is just kind of like a high-variance strategy. I mean, when you're on, you can be the best country if you're on for, for, for threes, and, and you can, but you can also set yourself up for an early exit. So that's what happens. Hey, a quick analytics follow-up. You mentioned, you know, sitting down at a game and watching uh, a team as opposed to looking at stats. Do you do you find, as someone who's a big believer in analytics, that you trust the statistics more than your eyes? Is the eye test still better than the stats? I think that you have to um, – you can't go either or. I think that the best thing to do is to blend your analysis that way. I mean, a lot of – obviously, there's plenty of stuff that I write that is purely numbers-based, but what I kind of like to do is, if you know, if you're really heading towards making an argument about something, is to – I often look at the numbers first, you know, and try to see if something's sticking out. But then I go and get tape, and I, I you know, and I try to make sure it matches up. I think there's like kind of an overlap. Like you, it has to, look, it has to make sense in both places. Like there was a thing a few years ago where remember when Anthony Davis was playing at Kentucky, and you could do plus minus on Kentucky like the first part of the season, and it turned out that Kentucky was a better defensive team with him off the floor for a little while. Yeah, you know, it's just not. It's just, okay, like, that doesn't, you know, if you just took those numbers and you believe that, that's, you're an idiot. You know, you have to, you have to acknowledge that, like, he wasn't playing in garbage time and the players on the floor. You know, just there are certain other factors and there's no way you could make a, a realistic argument once you factor the eye test in that, you know, Anthony Davis was hurting Kentucky's defense. Uh, so I, I just think that almost, if you can, you really just need to blend things at all, you know, on, on every level. Right, that makes sense. Hey, so Donald's going to ask you in a moment about Duke, but I want to talk about the ACC. Get just a couple questions about it. Um, uh, what teams have surprised you the most, and who's disappointed you the most so far? Well, I thought I mean Louisville has been. Rick Pitino was arguing that Louisville was underrated because of his scandal and people knocking the team down. I don't know if that's the case. I guess I underrated Louisville coming into the season because I thought that maybe making you know, a star from Drexel and a, and a guy from Cleveland State, your two primary offensive options wasn't just going to translate into being a good team on a national level, but they looked they looked excellent. I mean, Damian, the guys I'm referring to is Damian Lee and Trey Lewis. And uh, and I think that, you know, Rick Pitino, despite all the awful other stuff that's going on, I mean, the guy, when he has any kind of athletes around, he 
usually turns it into a ridiculously good defense, and he has a front line right now that's probably one of the better defensive front lines out there. John uh, Onowaku, who uh, did not look good last year as a freshman, but I think he, he made a bunch of strides this offseason with the U19 team uh, in Greece, and he's come back, and I don't know if you guys have watched much of him yet, but he's like a very excellent defensive player, I think, at this point. Uh, and so Louisville is now, whereas I didn't think they were an ACC contender, like they actually might be at this point. Um, and then disappointing teams, I don't know if there's anyone that looks horrible yet that I thought was going to be, <laughs> that I thought was going to be great. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't think that Carolina, I thought Carolina's, you know, that loss at Texas this weekend is excusable. It's a true road game early season, but I thought their defense would have made a little more strides. And that, you know, I don't think their defense really showed up in that game to the degree that you know you're hoping for for a team that you anointed number one in the preseason. I just thought they may have made a few more strides there, but it's early. You know, you wrote an article recently that I that I really enjoyed about about Virginia, um, and you. Uh, you know, of course, it, it focused on efficiency, which which you've already spoken some about, and and you said that it's almost like Virginia's offense is better than their defense at this point, which is something we're really not used to. Um, t- talk about them a little bit, um, uh, and and how good you think Virginia can be this year. They've been so good in recent years, and it's just never quite translated to tournament success. But boy, they've been great in the regular season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they could win the ACC again this year. I, I do, I do this hypothesis that they might be better offensively. Uh, I mean, right now, I think if you look at you know Tim Pomeroy's said the defense is a little ahead. I would say that's a little misleading because West Virginia, which is the last team that they beat and kind of has propped up their defensive statistics, was kind of like the perfect team for them to defend. You know, basically couldn't shoot jumpers. Uh, relies a whole bunch on offensive rebounding and transition. Doesn't have the big men who can pass. So. That's probably a little inflated, but yeah, Virginia. I mean, you know, I think we got used to them having some great front court defenders, guys like uh, Atkins last year and Akil Mitchell before him. Uh, they don't really have that this time. You see them kind of tinkering with their, you know, front court rotations. Like Anthony Gill, who is their front court star, he is an offensive player first. I mean, that, he, his his best attribute is kind of finishing around the rim, just kind of like reacting to drivers and being in the right place. And you know, I, I'd say Malcolm Brogdon, who might be the most recognizable name on that team is a better offensive player than he is defender by far. But it's mm-hmm. like these guys just play in this great defensive system where I would imagine, I mean, from what I know, they, they work on defense a majority of the time in practice. So it's like they're they're just by nature going to be pretty good at it. I just don't think that this team has um, guys who are like individually great at defense. So, uh, but, but the way they're arranging the guards this year, I mean, you know, you, you guys at Duke see, you know, the benefits of playing small at times. And I think that when they use these three guys who are sort of like combo-y point guards, Brogdon and Darius Thompson and Prontis together, like that's a pretty good offensive team and might not be their best defensive team, but it seems to work. You know, I love that you brought up small ball. I, I, I want to tell you, so I laid out all my questions for you, and you've, like, led me into each and every one of them on your own. It's great. It's a lot of fun. I can anticipate, <laughs> my, I can anticipate where all the Duke stuff is going at this point. Yeah, yeah well, well, but actually, so this is not about Duke. You, you're talking about small okay. ball. I was going to say the NBA is, even though they just lost, the NBA is obsessed with the Golden State Warriors and, and their small ball. Um, you know, do you feel like is there any co- college equivalent and – you know, 
you know, are we going to see more and more teams at the college level try and do that same kind of thing? I'll tell you that I sort of there's a piece of me that that kind of wishes Coach K would do that because I feel like he's got a lot of the the pieces that would allow you to to play guys all over the floor and and sort of do everything, which is very much a hallmark of of what the Warriors have been so successful at. Yeah, I mean, I think you see teams like. You know, I, I don't think you see anyone playing, like, when you watch them in college, you say, oh, that feels like I'm watching the Warriors. Just because this year especially, I mean, I'm a huge college basketball fan, but, I, you know, I have to admit, in past years, I, I, would, I could honestly say, I don't really watch, like, watching the NBA over college. But there are times when I turn on the Warriors this year where I'm like, oh, my God, this is just so much better than anything. It's <laughs> beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, you know, you're always jealous that you're not covering that. So there's no team that I see that looks like it, but there are teams that I think um, that, that are willing to play small and willing to, you know, to, shoot, to, to really stretch from the perimeter. Like Villanova, you know, it's not the same, but they, they – they play pretty small at times, just kind of centering around. You know, they have Daniel Chefu down low, but they but they're playing wings and guards around him. They're they're doing a lot of cutting. They're relying on the three heavily. Um, not saying I think they're going to win the title or you know, but but that team is uh, is one proponent of it. I mean, Coach K is willing to. I don't know if it's his best lineup, but I mean, when he does when he does the four guards around Emil or Marshall, I mean that's or that's a pretty fun team to watch, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty fun scoring attack. I don't – in college, it seems like – I wish more teams would do it because I think there's an, a more, there's seems to be an, a higher abundance of skilled wings and guards than there are bigs in college. Like, you would think that there were more teams that would be willing to, but I don't necessarily see it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I I agree with you, and and it is it is fun to watch. It's a little more faster paced kind of game. It feels like. Hey, last question for me, and then I hand it over to Donald. Um, so Luke, I know it's really early. We haven't even started conference play yet, but um, I'm going to ask you to do what everybody probably asks you to do. Give me your final four projections. Not the teams that look the best right now, but the teams you think will be the best when we get to late March. Okay, I think that. I'm trying to remember what I did in the preseason. I think in the preseason I did Carolina, Kentucky, Oklahoma, and Wichita State. Wichita State has lost a few teams, but they're you know, I, I think part of that was due to a lot of injuries. Uh I think what I would do now going back is I still like Oklahoma. You know, I still like Oklahoma, I still like Carolina. I'm gonna take Kentucky up. So I think I'd go Oklahoma, Michigan State, Carolina, and I don't think I'm going to do Duke. I think I'll go with. Uh, you know what? I'm still going to go with. I'm still going to go with Wichita State as the dark horse. Just I think once they get completely healthy, I have a soft spot for Fred VanVleet and Ron Baker. And I think once they get healthy, they'll have a lower seed than they want. But that's my dark horse team sitting in. Interesting, interesting. I like it. Well, hey, hey Luke, thanks a lot, and I'm going to hand you over to Donald Wine now. Hey, Luke, how's it going? Uh, thank, thank you again for being on. Um, we're going to stay with the NCAA for, uh, for a minute. Um, I want to get uh, – Jason was asking about your Final Four predictions. Uh, I wanted to see what you thought overall your the biggest surprises so far this season and any uh, disappointments that you have, uh, teams or, or players or anybody. Huh. Well, I guess I've been, I've been watching a lot – just because I watched an LSU game last night, I, I thought that what I say about LSU, just that um, you know, I, I was a big Ben Simmons believer coming into the season. I don't think I've really dropped off there. I just thought that there was 
I didn't think that there was enough talent around him to actually contend for the SEC title, but I am just I'm surprised at the degree to which they've struggled um, to really like come up with a half court offense around a guy who is such a transcendent talent. Um, and I, you know, they're they're really LSU's really in danger at this point of not making the NCAA tournament. I mean, they're they're, they're going to have to come up with some big SEC wins um, to and a lot of them to get in the conversation. So that one is that, that's a little disappointing. I still think Simmons great. Uh, I still probably would pick him number one overall. Um, other disappointments. Um, I mean, I thought that, like, I mean, you guys saw this within the Indiana's probably worst defensive performance that it could possibly imagine came at Cameron. And uh, to see Indiana, I mean, Indiana, we projected them to have the best offense in the country with our statistical projection system coming this season. And they really, their offense is still really good, but and all they really need to do was make like some reasonable defensive strides to kind of get in that conversation. I thought of, um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about these kind of high varying teams. Like if Indiana with a little bit better defense could get in the tournament and with a hot run can make the Final Four because they can score so well. But I don't know if they've really done it. They're they're still ranked outside the top 100 in defense, and it was kind of at this point, unless they make a big improvement, they're like squandering this potentially great offensive team. Um, surprises, we talked about Louisville a little bit. I mean, I, I was misguidedly had them outside my top 20. Or maybe I had them in my top 25, but I know that they were outside my top 20, and I think they're better than that, uh, definitely better than that, um, and look like an actual contender. Um, I was, I think of who else I was a little bit low on. Um Michigan State, I probably thought, I mean, I liked Denzel Valentine, but I didn't, um, maybe I didn't appreciate uh, how good Michigan State's offense could be, like how good he can make his teammates when he's the focal point. I mean, I, I viewed them as a as a decent Big Ten team, but maybe I thought that Maryland was almost like a lock to win that league, and that's not the case anymore. I mean, Michigan State has looked great so far. So Denzel Valentine, I mean, I don't think that. He's, he, to me, I don't think there's any, any argument that he's not, the, you know, the national player of the year front runner. And, you know, early in the season, we, people were probably saying that was guys like Simmons or Wiltshire or, um, any, you know, Chris Dunn or any of those guys, any, any number of guys. I mean, Grayson Allen, your guy, is up there, but, but Denzel is doing everything. So, so you're, you were mentioning Ben Simmons, uh, and, you know, it's funny. I was talking with a friend last night about the question of whether uh, a number one draft pick has ever if there's ever been a number one draft pick that hasn't made the tournament and so it got me thinking is it harder to gauge how good Ben Simmons really is with LSU being playing so mediocre so far or is it easier to recognize the talent that he possesses when you when you put him with that team uh, I would say that there are things that you're probably missing I mean when you get that in transition like you can see all the stuff you can do I I got to think there are some things that you could do in half court offenses that I hope LSU kind of arrives at at some point. Like you know, I mean, I guess when you watch him, when he when he gets a defensive rebound, he gets he go he goes and he leads the offense, and it, it actually looks great a lot of times. But in half court, they sometimes struggle to really find out ways to use him. And I think that he could be he's not really he's not a shooter at all, but he's not being used in a high post or low post enough with his passing skills. And I think that. There's probably things that NBA scouts imagine he can do that they haven't seen yet that they kind of just have to hope hope would work or you know hope to see in workouts. Like his, I, I think he's probably he's potentially a great passer, like out of the high post if they were to get him the ball there a little more often. 
And if you're, I think, I don't know if there's been a number one pick off a non-tournament team. I know that when Michael Beasley, although he wasn't number one, he when he was at Kansas State, they barely made it in the tournament. I, that that to me is like the comparison a little bit was when he was he Beasley was. I know his NBA star has completely faded and he's not in the league anymore, but when he was in college, he was incredible. And his team, I think, was like an 11 seed. They barely made it in. Yeah, and I, I, I do remember um, them playing a lot of games on national TV, and, and you could see how good he was. But, again, that question came up with, you know, if this guy can't barely lead his team to the tournament, is he really the talent that we think he is? And so I I thought that was a nice little uh, uh, corollary with with Ben Simmons. Um, but we, we're running out of time. I, 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 we thank you so much for being here. But we just want to end. This is the Duke Basketball Report podcast so we want to end with a couple questions on our team so uh so far where do you think uh what do you what do you think of duke's performance do you think it's in line with expectations or are we are we exceeding them or are we coming up short i think it's almost exactly in line with what i had preseason expectations i mean i thought that uh you know now that now that Ingram, I mean, okay, two games. Ingram's kind of coming along, and I think that, that what we envisioned the preseason was kind of this, like, you know, co-leading score kind of situation with him and Grayson Allen. I mean, I would say that Grayson Allen has exceeded expectations. Like, I thought, you know, there were all these indications that he could be a star, you know, to do what he did on a big stage in the tournament, but to come out and score the way he scored. I mean, as an analytics guy, I mean, Grayson Allen's like off the charts. He's, the way he's scoring right now, uh, like the level of efficiency uh, on, you know, the the, met, the way he's shooting threes, the way he's getting the foul line and pretty much convert, you know, shooting, he's a 90% free throw shooter who knows how to draw fouls and who uh, he's, he's got to be one of the best, like high usage scorers in the country. And I guess maybe I didn't anticipate that he would be this efficient. So he has, succeeded to me. I mean, I think that Emil Jefferson is reminding people that he's probably like the best, I, I think he's probably like the best role-playing big man in the country. Um, you know, Duke's still kind of in that, I wouldn't call it a dilemma, but it's kind of like a decision between, I mean, these the lineups when you use Emil and Marshall Plumley together are a little bit better defensively, but I think that the most, you know, like fun and, you know, first Duke team to watch is when they do play that small ball team and their offense can be great around it. Um, and I don't think they're near their ceiling. I mean, you guys, you guys know this. Like Brandon Ingram just seems to be kind of like figuring it out, and he's still scoring twenty, you know, getting twenty point games, and it, it doesn't look like he's near the peak of what he can do. And Derek Thornton seems to like kind of fluctuate. You know, he, he looks great sometimes, and but I think that you know there's potential that he could be like a, a, a pretty solid point guard later on. Luke Kennard is still figuring it out, and he's already like a pretty efficient role player. So you've got at least three guys that have a lot of room to improve and you're, you know, a top 10 team and you've only lost one and you've, you've had one loss and it's an excusable loss, not one that you, you know, I mean, it still hurts, but it was like excusable. And I think that, I think you're almost exactly where you thought you would be. And last question before we got to here, uh, we, uh, you were talking about some of the things that we are doing and some of the things that have not materialized yet. Ingram coming along. What do you think, what do you think that Duke lacks that could be our downfall uh, come turning time if not improved? Is there one thing that you kind of say is the poison pill that would be, you know, what, how Duke goes down in the tournament? Well, I mean, I I guess you could say that I I do think that, that 
that that sort of that point guard uh, question, if you will, of, of whether you know if it, it, it fluctuates whether like they want Derek Thornton being that guy leading the offense, and I, I just think that they're that they're probably better. They're better. They're better off, like in the long run, to have like a like a pure point guard type facilitating things. I, I still think. I just don't think like Matt Jones has done it. You know, is doing it on occasion, but I, I feel like he's it's just not in his blood to you know like just be a distributor. Um, and so if they have if they fall into that thing later in the year, like they they don't trust Derek Thornton in big stages. I, you know, if, like let's say he falters in these big, in some big ACC games, and you're heading into the tournament, and you know he does doesn't seem to be trusted to get big minutes. Uh, like, I could see that being an issue, just, you know, like the offense kind of like sputtering without having like a creator that you can call on at times. Um, I don't, he seems good enough that he should be able to do it, but that's a scenario I could vision that could like hurt you in the long run. Yeah, and I think that's going to be something that we can, I think that's something that Coach K will be working with going forward. And I think these guys are going to be right there and hopefully maybe not one of your, uh, projected final four participants uh come april but uh we want to thank you so much luke for for being on um we can't thank you enough for your time and uh uh we, we look forward to reading reading all your uh, power rankings going down the road all right thanks a lot for having me on appreciate it <laughs> So again, huge thanks to uh, Luke Wynn of Sports Illustrated, who was so nice to come on and chat with us, and he was really great, and uh, it, it was a very fun conversation. Um, any reaction, uh, Donald? What 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 what's your takeaways? Yeah, so I mean, I, I I thank him for coming on. I think it was a great interview. But one thing that I I have to comment, on, I think it's a very honest perspective that he gave on the fact that he really isn't that into Northwestern sports, you know, and, and, you know, he's a Northwestern grad. You hear about all these journalists and there's a lot that have gone to uh, Northwestern that, you know, you see Mike Wilbon on PTI just clamoring over Northwestern uh, football and basketball all the time. Uh, you see all the UNC, uh, you know, journalism uh, grads who are always, you know, throwing their Tar Heel signs and stuff like that, and, and same with Syracuse and Michigan, other big schools. Um, so it's a, kind of a fresh perspective to see someone that says, "Yeah, I went to the school and I love the school, but you know, I just wasn't really, don't really have a tie to uh, one of their sports teams." And I think that's kind of an interesting perspective uh, that he doesn't have that big a tie to Northwestern. It, it probably helps with his ob- objectivity when it when it comes to uh, describing their chances for the tournament. Yeah, which he he didn't give them the greatest chance. Um, uh, I was sort of bummed. I was hoping that he was going to be more of a Northwestern fan. I mean, you could tell that when I started the interview by by asking about that. Um, I just find their story so fascinating. They've yeah. never been in the tournament. I just think it's so amazing when you think about the history of college basketball, big five teams that have all the advantages over the smaller teams and everything, and Northwestern's never been to the NCAA tournament. It's just, go Coach Collins. Come on, Chris. Uh, Sam, what about you? I, I really enjoyed the interview. I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't make it, uh, but I thought that he had a lot of a lot of good comments about about teams all over the country, and I especially enjoyed that he uh, brought us uh, new new websites to go check out for analytics because I think that sometimes we do get ourselves in the Ken Palm hole. So I'll be uh, I'll be checking out some of those things, some of those other sites that he mentioned. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Ken Palm because there's something I want to uh, harken back to really, really quickly. Emil Jefferson, um, uh, but and then we're going to get to our parting shots in just a second. Uh, have you guys noticed um, on Pomeroy's rank- rankings the ACC's dominance in the offensive rankings? Uh, it is unbelievable. It's really uh, impressive. 
And I bring it up because without Emil Jefferson, uh, with Emil Jefferson, you know, Duke's defense is unquestionably better than it is without it. Um, we're going to be facing some of the best offenses in the country. Uh, Duke, of course, as we know, Pomeroy says has the best offense in the land. Um, uh, it's been that way for almost all season. Um, Notre Dame is number two. North Carolina is number three. Miami is number five. Virginia is number seven. Pittsburgh is in the top 15. The ACC is littered, littered with good offenses. We're talking five of the top seven, sorry, we're talking five of the top seven offenses in the country, according to the advanced analytics of Ken Pomeroy, are in the ACC. And uh, boy, let me tell you, with, without Emil Jefferson, that is going to be a real test for Duke. You may see us playing a lot of games in the 80s, maybe even the 90s, it's possible, um, in ACC battles. And it's going to be very interesting to see. You know, I'm sure Coach K is, uh, is scheming ways to, to figure out how to not have that happen because he's a guy who loves defense more than offense. Um, all right. Anyway, uh, let's let's get to parting shots. Uh, Donald, let, let me let me start with you because um, I think I know where you want to go with your parting shot. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this news that uh, dropped uh, last night, if, which was uh, Tuesday, um, very, very late uh, after all the games were done, that uh, Bo Ryan announced his retirement effective immediately, um, which was, uh, for me, kind of a surprise. But looking at uh, some of the news around his rationale um, behind retiring now, uh, now it makes more sense. You know, as, as a lot of people know, he had announced retirement uh, before the season said it was going to take effect at the end of the year. But then at that point, he said, well, maybe it won't. Maybe, you know, I can reevaluate after the season. It sounds like he's very, very high on one of his assistant coaches, Greg Gard. And, and it seems like he's going to be the one that takes over uh, on an interim basis. So it sounds like he wanted to give him kind of a, 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 a tryout, if you, if you will, or, you know, a, kind of a, an, an opportunity to interview for the job by taking over the team for the rest of the season. Um, they haven't been very good this year, um, and so I think it'd be a good test for Greg Gard. Uh, but Bo Ryan is stepping down now, uh, before I read all the news, seemed very shocking to me. So I thought that was very uh, a big news in the landscape of college basketball. You know, Wisconsin has been a tournament every single year uh, under his uh, tenure. Um, of course, they were in the in the final game against us last year. Um, they've been very, very uh, good in the past, uh, you know, getting to the Final Four a couple times as well and winning a couple of Big Ten championships. So, you know, it's been a very good career for uh, Bo Ryan, especially in his time at Wisconsin. And I thought that was a very, very big news to share. Yeah, and, and you know, one thing I want to add about Greg Gard, the uh, assistant coach who's going to be taking over the team. First of all, He's been an assistant at Wisconsin for 15 years. Um, uh, so this is a guy that uh, Bo Ryan um, has, has known for a long time and is certainly connected to the program. Um, Greg Gard's father was battling brain cancer earlier this, this season, earlier this year. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that Bo Ryan um, was delaying his retirement a little bit, I think maybe he wanted to retire uh even sooner was uh, Greg Gard wasn't in a position to be able to take over the team because he, he was helping his father with the very courageous and very difficult fight against cancer. Um, his father succumbed to cancer a, a, a short time ago, um, and I think that Bo Ryan recognized, okay, you know, now that Greg Gard has put that in his past, um, he's, he's dealt with you know the important family issues. He's now able to devote his attention to being the head coach the Wisconsin Badgers. And so Bo Ryan has stepped aside. There, there are people who can be cynical about Bo Ryan. There are a lot of people who, uh, uh, and, and look, we were among them who 
didn't like the way Bo Ryan handled the loss to Duke in the national championship game last year. A lot of a lot of sour grapes going on there. But I think the way Bo Ryan has concluded his career, he's handed his program over to someone that he has great confidence in and who is ready finally at this point to take it over is very, very classy. I wish Bo Ryan all the best, um, uh, you know, an, an upstanding individual um, and a, a heck of a heck of a basketball coach um, who will, of course, be missed uh, in the Big Ten and the entire college basketball universe. Sam, do you got a parting shot for us? Yeah, I wanted to just add on Bo Ryan that, um, you know, we talked on the DBR forum a lot about the Duke curse, which is which is a bunch of baloney about how teams that lose to Duke in the tournament or teams that beat Duke in the tournament rather um, go on to terrible misfortune. The uh, man, the Wisconsin Badgers have flipped that one over. Uh, their their coach had to retire after they after they lost to Duke in the tournament. So that that was pretty incredible. Uh, exactly follow the um, the standard. Uh, procedure for the Duke curse, but and, and his last game, it, his last game was uh, just this past Saturday against Marquette, who is, as you know, by Coach Cal or Coach Wojo. So uh, yeah. his very last game uh, of his career was against their major rival, and a Duke guy once again kind of took him down. Yeah, let's let's just continue on ongoing forever the hubris that everything that is bad in college basketball is due to someone running into Duke. Uh, my parting shot was about. Uh, Going, switching over to football really fast, uh, assistant coach and, and former offensive coordinator at Duke, Scotty Montgomery, and also former Duke wide receiver, Scotty Montgomery, uh, left the Duke program last week to become the head coach at East Carolina University, a school that has seen a lot of success in the last few years in football. They've beaten a number of ACC teams, uh, including Virginia Tech a couple of times and UNC. So it's a great opportunity for Scotty Montgomery, who I think a lot of folks were a little bit, they were excited about him when he got promoted to offensive coordinator. His time as offensive coordinator, I think, was not as good as people expected it to be. Um, I think there may have been a little additional hype because of his connection to the program and, and the time he spent as both a player and a coach in the NFL. I'm curious to see how he does at East Carolina running his own program. I saw some comments about how, you know, maybe he's more cut out to be a head coach than he is a coordinator because of the enthusiasm that he brings. And now the players all seem to really like him. Um, I've heard from from folks who work with the team that he's great to work with. So I'm interested to see how he does at ETU. I'll, I'll be rooting for the Pirates now. And um, we'll see also which of the uh, members of the staff that he pulls over with them. This is going to be an opportunity for Coach Cut to, to find new assistants probably uh, at, at the very least offensive coordinator and and potentially some of the other offensive coaches that, that Scotty Montgomery might bring with him. So we'll see how things develop there. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, Sam. It's great to see Scotty Montgomery get um, get a, a chance at a head coaching gig, um, and and important to see uh, some of the assistants on the Duke team um, getting uh, uh, upgrades as they move on to other programs. It's an acknowledgement of of all that Duke has accomplished um, uh, in football, and uh, and good luck to the guys as we've got a, a bowl game coming up um, in about ten days or so. Um, I want to uh, leave folks with one final thing before we go. Um, there is an ESPN article that I think is worth reading for Duke fans. Um, it's by Myron Metcalf. Uh, it's titled The Floor is Yours, which is a, a column that Myron does, I think, every week or something like that. But it says, the floor is yours. And the question is, can North Carolina return to elite status? Um, and it's a uh, not too lengthy article talking about um, Carolina in the wake of their loss over the weekend to Texas. Um, a decent Texas team, a Texas team that's probably on the rise because Shaka Smart is, is quite a good coach and an upgrade from Rick Barnes. 
but uh, but not a great Texas team by any stretch of the imagination. Carolina went to Texas, and props to them for playing a true road game against a Big Five team. I know that doesn't happen um, a lot for the elite programs, uh, and Carolina lost. And Myron Metcalf sort of asked the question, you know, where is UNC today in terms of their um, stature among the top teams in the land? He points out that Carolina hasn't been in the Final Four since 2009. I mean, look, if you think about it, kids that the Carolinas recruiting right now, they were like 10 years old the last time Carolina was in the Final Four. I mean, it's not like a kid growing up and being recruited today thinks of North Carolina as a team that's always at the top of the college basketball world. I mean, Carolina has been to the NIT more recently than they've been to the Final Four. Um, and uh, and the article goes on and on and talks about, you know, some ways that this season is unbelievably important for UNC. Um, their recruiting has not been super great the past few years. Um, looks like they're going to lose some guys from this year, not just as seniors, but guys who may turn pro. The recruiting really wouldn't seem to be able to put them back uh, on top. So this year they need to get there. And it doesn't look like they're there quite yet. Um, the article then goes on and talks about a few other programs uh, that uh, used to be on top and, and how long it has been since they've been in a Final Four. I, I really laughed at this one. They, they mentioned the UNLV running Rebels, who, of course, were one of the top programs in the 1990s. And uh, they point out that the, the last time UNLV was in the Final Four was the same year the real Vivian was still on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Man, Sam, that probably... You probably don't even know what I'm talking about when I say that. I know what the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is. So there was a original Aunt Viv. Aunt and then Aunt got, yeah, then she got replaced by a by a new Aunt Viv. So last time UNLV was in the Final Four, the original Aunt Viv was still there. And I you got it. nothing. To, you got nothing to say to that. He can't. He can't. He can't. He can't. That's that's my favorite show of all time. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've been rambling on and on. Anyway, folks, I think it's worth reading this article, uh, both for a little bit of uh, of gloating um, about Carolina's uh, lack of success in recent years. And also there's there's just some interesting perspective on some other top programs, uh, UNLV, Indiana, Maryland, UCLA uh, and Texas teams that um, for years and years, you know, you would consider to be locks to be uh, significant players in the college basketball universe who really haven't been for quite a while. Um, and, uh, and, you know, sort of what it will take, um, especially this year, this year, I think each one of these programs thinks they have a, a decent chance to return to some glory. Um, uh, so gentlemen, I think we're, we're pretty much wrapped up. Am I correct? Anything else? Are we done? I think as we're Jay done. Billis would say, as, as Jay Billis would say, I've got to go to work. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thanks for joining me early in the morning. Folks, go out and see Star Wars. Make sure you see it spoiler-free, spoiler-free, spoiler-free. It is uh, a, a ton of fun, um, and uh, uh, that's about it. Um, I am Jason Evans. My colleagues Samuel Klein and Donald Wine and I all uh, wish you all a, a happy weekend. And uh, Duke Band, take it away for us. 